This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. Lock and load indeed, because we are loaded today. Greetings. Happy Tuesday. Welcome to the Steve Day Show, live and on demand here on Blaze TV, radio and podcast. Steve Day's here with Todd Erzin, Aaron McIntyre, and all of you. Let us know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. D-E-A-C-E is how to spell the last name. You can like us on Facebook, MeWe, Gab, and Parlor. Look for Steve Dace there. Follow me at Steve Dace Show on Twitter. And if you're looking for clips of the show, rumble.com slash Steve Dace Show is where you can go. Or just avoid potential censorship uh, downfalls everywhere by subscribing directly to us at blazetv.com slash Dace. Again, that's blazetv.com slash Dace. Get a discounted subscription today. Also get our overtime that we do exclusively uh, for our Blaze TV subscribers. And we do exclusive content, we, this time the collective we, not just this show. Uh, but the collective we, we do exclusive content every day here at Blaze TV. You don't want to miss it. Blazetv.com slash Dace is where you'll get uh, today's overtime. We're going to delve into those interesting millennial polling numbers comparing 2008 to 2020 and what they may or may not mean. We'll get into that in the overtime today. You'll get to watch it after we record it. Following today's program, it'll be uploaded for you at your convenience, and you'll watch it at blazetv.com slash dace, or if you're not yet a subscriber, that's where you can go to become one at a discount. Jam-packed, loaded program today. We've got uh, back-to-back guests next hour. One is long overdue. I've, I've, I've said to myself like seven times in the last year, we got to get that guy on our show. Andrew Bostom is an epidemiologist and researcher at Brown University. If you listen to our colleague Daniel Horowitz's podcast, you have heard him before. If you see me on, follow me on Twitter, you've seen me share some of his stuff before. We're going to get into his research on vaccine safety, herd immunity, et cetera. We're going to get into all of that. He's just looking at the data. What does the data say? We'll get into that coming up next hour. Also next hour, she was the breakout star at One American News Network. She's now breaking out on her own with her own podcast, which I believe debuts today. Liz Wheeler will be joining us next hour of the show. Next segment of the program, fake news or not, as we continue uh, going through our number one best-selling book, Fauci and Bargain, the most powerful and dangerous bureaucrat in American history. All of that coming your way, but first, all righteousness must be fulfilled. And we begin with Aaron's rundown of what happened while we were away. 
What happened while we were away brought to you by Censorship Run Amok. Project Veritas, while in Twitter jail, is still scorching the powers that be, this time Facebook. Project Veritas got not one, but two whistleblowers from inside Facebook, one of whom is a data center engineer, to obtain documents showing the company actively embarked on a campaign to shut down any dissent or discussion about the effectiveness of vaccines. Facebook uses classifiers in their algorithms to determine certain content to be what they call vaccine hesitant, or they call it vaccine hesitancy. Without the user's knowledge, they assign a score to these comments that's called the VH score, vaccine hesitancy score. And based on that score, we'll demote or leave the comment alone, depending on the content within the comment. So those are the main document along with uh, all, the, all the attachments and stuff that goes with it. So basically when they write this algorithm, it goes through Facebook content and it looks for certain keywords uh, that are related to vaccination or you know not getting a vaccine and stuff like that. And it gives it a score and the VA score means vaccine, vaccine hesitancy, which is defined as being hesitant to get a vaccine, but not just like, well, I don't know, it's, it's even, well, I saw a study that said that someone died that got the vaccine. That's vaccine hesitancy. This is all a beta test. Right, right. And, and how big is this uh, beta test? They refer to the test size as 1.5%. I'm not exactly which, sure which pool that pulls from, but I think it's comments on authoritative health pages. Speaking of big tech, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has signed a bill into law in the state that would allow Floridians to sue big tech platforms for monetary damages if they've been censored. Here's a question he was asked at a press conference. You're a loyal supporter of former President Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump is now a resident in Florida, and he was deplatformed. Is this bill for him? The bill is for everyday Floridians, this is what we said, um, and it will allow any Floridian to be able to, um, to provide uh, what, what they're doing. So, um, but I think, I mean, I do think that's another issue that, that has been brought to bear. When you deplatform the President of the United States, but you let Ayatollah Khomeini talk about killing Jews, that is wrong. Also in Florida, DeSantis continues to take on critical race theory in schools. It's offensive to the taxpayer that they would be asked to fund critical race theory, that they would be asked to fund teaching kids to hate their country and to hate each other. It's also based on false history. When they try to look back and, and, and denigrate the founding fathers, denigrate the American Revolution, doing all these different things that even very liberal historians say is not supported by the facts. And so I think what we need is we need the Constitution back in classrooms. We need to make sure civics is a priority, but it needs to be taught accurately. It needs to be taught in a fact-based way, not an ideological-based way. And we are, if we have to play whack-a-mole all over the state stopping this critical race theory, we will do it. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer had this to say when confronted regarding the photo leaked over the weekend showing her flouting her own state's COVID restrictions. And there's always a pushback, right? In this environment, there is no making everyone happy on any issue. Speaking of Michigan, here's researcher Ian Miller once more with an update. This graph shows daily new cases per 1 million individuals in the state. On April 12th, you'll remember the CDC director said Michigan should, quote, shut things down. Look at that nice steep drop afterwards, but at least the kids are still masked. Former FDA chief and the man known as COVID Kardashian, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, is adding his voice to the growing chorus of those who now believe COVID could have originated out of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. question for a lot of people is going to be when are too many coincidences too much? When does it just seem that there's too many things suggesting that this could have come out of a lab? 
Um, and right now, you know, there's more and more circumstantial evidence, certainly. I don't think we're ever going to get to the bottom of this. Checking in on the New York Times is Maggie Haberman, who says suppression of the lab leak hypothesis last year is actually Trump's fault. It's important to remember that part of the issue when this was first being reported on and discussed back a few months after the pandemic had begun was that then-President Trump and Mike Pompeo, uh, the uh, Secretary of State, both suggested they had seen evidence that this was formed in a lab, and they also suggested it was not released on purpose, but they refused to release the evidence showing what it was. In other news, this guy... is apologizing to China for calling Taiwan a country. In case you're wondering, no, you didn't have a stroke, he's apologizing to the Chinese government in Chinese. Learning Chinese today, today's phrase is, we say jump, you say how high. Checking in on Joe Biden. But uh, there's, you know, there to be, you know, beginning uh, this effort uh, for 2021 is, uh, I think we've learned a few lessons from last year as well. There's help as we, there, you know. And finally, this from the Babylon Bee. Instead of traditional warfare, Chinese military will now be trained to shout wrong pronouns at American troops. And that's what happened while we were away. Aaron's Montage brought to you by realestateagentsitrust.com. You know, trying to sell or buy a home in any economic environment can be challenging and stressful, but especially when it comes to these, wait for it, unprecedented times. Bing. Thank you. Uh, we've checked that box again for today. That's why you want to make sure you have an agent who comes in and takes charge of the situation while also remembering, though, who is ultimately in charge. That would be you. Where would such an agent be found? And how about we even throw in a verified track record of success? That's always good to have before you hire somebody, right? Proof that they, proof of concept. Can they actually do what they say? Where would you find such a real estate agent? Do they exist? In fact, they do. And there are uh, multitudes of them. Uh, just about anywhere you want to escape to or move away or to or from, uh, we can help you at realestateagentsitrust.com. The name just kind of says it all. Realestateagentsitrust.com. And, and really this started as a grassroots effort. Agents in our own audience who were like, hey, we're, we can help. You know, we're, we're tired of hearing everybody's sob stories too, especially because uh, we know what we're doing. So connect us with people with like-minded values. And it just kind of mushroomed and grew, and grew from there. Realestateagentsitrust.com. All right, to the montage we go. Uh, anybody shocked at Facebook censoring or targeting vaccine hesitancy? Anybody, yes or no? Anybody with an IQ above six surprised to hear this? Any sentient being in any of the nine realms? Any carbon-based life form virtually anywhere? Uh, anywhere within the realm of four-dimensional chess? Anybody? No? Okay. You had me at censoring. Yes. So, sure or false? History shows the side that has to suppress opposition and scrutiny and skepticism is always on the right side of the argument. Aaron, go. False. Todd, what do you think? Yeah, just a bit outside. Yeah, that's not typically how it works, right? Right. So is the implication then that history, if it doesn't show 
those who cannot tolerate and therefore need to suppress skepticism, scrutiny, or opposition. Um, if, if it doesn't show that they're on the right side of the argument, does that imply, therefore, that they're more often than not, not? Does it imply that? Now you're throwing heat right down the middle. Yeah. Hmm. Why would they have to... Why would they have to suppress anything? It's the last word you gave options, dissent, uh, but the last word was opposition. They just fundamentally hate that you aren't culting like they are. Mm. One of the questions I want to ask Andrew Bostom next hour is what percentage of our herd immunity threshold would he estimate the vaccination effort gets credit for. I, I want to know the answer to that. Should question. get credit for? You yeah, mean yes, reality? Yeah, yeah okay, the reality. Yes. How, how much should it get credit for? All right. So remind me next hour when Andrew is with us, I want to ask. I've got a few questions in mind that need to be answered for our audience, but that that is definitely one of them. So let's talk about Michigan because I'm actually going there. Uh, I've not been back to my old home state since 2016, I think was the last time I was there. So I'm actually going there in a couple of weeks to speak at the legislature on behalf of the Convention of States. And I really didn't have time to fit this into my schedule, but when it was asked of me and given just how how many people I still know there, how much I love the place how disappointed I am at how at what's become of it. I, I just felt like I, I, I had to make it somehow work. I couldn't say no, okay? So here's what's gone down over these last couple of weeks. Whitmer has now... So Aaron, you noted in the uh, Ian Miller graph that mm-hmm. her Department of Health, or her, no, as the CDC said, shut CDC. everything down. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't do that. They did respond by expanding the mask. That's that's when they responded by expanding the mask wearing to the toddlers, correct? Mm-hmm. But they did not shut everything back down. Last week, she announced everything's pretty much opening back up. By around June 1, there will be no outdoor capacity limits anywhere whatsoever. I think indoor capacity limits until I think I saw July 1, I think it is, I believe so, are 50%. Yeah. Um. Her response to uh, being caught breaking her own regulation about how many people can sit at a table was to get rid of that regulation right away, right? Yep. So here's a question I have. Because frankly, we have not encountered this. We, we and, and so we used to encounter this all the time. And so I... I used to kind of know what to do with it, but we have not encountered this in this current era. Like we were having, I know what is said in the overtime is said in the overtime, but it's so pertinent to this conversation. I, I want to bring something that came up yesterday in the overtime for subscribers into the gen pop here, because I think it'll set the stage for what I'm thinking here in this Whitmer conversation. One of the points our colleague Robino made yesterday on the panel is that Democrats never figured out that Trump really did want to make these deals. 
Like if they would have, if Pelosi and Schumer had said nice things about him and, and, and offered an amnesty deal, he would have taken it. In fact, he offered them, remember, he offered them a massive amnesty deal. He actually offered them a bigger amnesty deal than they were originally demanding. Do you remember this? Of course. Mm-hmm. And it shut the government down when they said no. They said, nope, it's got to be a blanket total amnesty. And Trump's like, well, dude, I, I can't even get away with my, from my, my, even my base that I can shoot someone on Fifth Avenue. But if I do an all blanket amnesty, they'll shoot me. I, I can't even do that. Even that's you found the one thing even I don't believe I can get away with with my own base. So Trump said, I can't do that. Shut the government down. Right. Yes. Remember that whole thing? What was that? 2019, I think is when that all occurred. 2018. And so Rob was making this point yesterday in our conversation that he would have cut lots of deals with them. If. And this is what Republicans have traditionally done, talked like us to get elected and then cut deals with Dems once in office, right? Read my lips, no new taxes. The first Bush, the second Bush was, uh, let's do Medicare Part D and grow government, right? Okay. Um, And it just so happened that between the fact that the Republican base is further to the right than it's ever been, combine that with Democrats now are so cultic, they won't cut any deals that they really, in many respects, the environment kind of pushed Trump in to probably even more of a right-wing presidency than he ever oh. assumed when he got elected. It's a certainty. Okay. Um, and we used to know, we used to hear, we used to know Democrats understood this. And this is how we know now the Democratic Party is a cult. They used to just cut these deals, get what they want, then still attack that Republican who gave them what they wanted as a racist, misogynistic, xenophobic, homophobic bigot anyway, beat that guy, right? And then come back for the rest of what they didn't get the first time. That's what they used to do, right? Yes. But now they, they don't offer you anything. Now the deal is you slit your throat or we slit it for you. Now the deal is das Findania instead of in plur, e pluribus unum. Now the deal is hammers and sickles everywhere instead of stars and bars. That's the deal, right? Like I said, they hate that you won't call it like they do. Yes. yes. Yeah. So that's how you know, as it collectively, the Democratic Party, I, I, like I, the whole Marjorie Taylor Greene thing, not my congresswoman. I don't care. I don't get into the soap opera. I don't care. Okay. But someone's responding from the right about why, you know, why are we, you know, McConnell, everybody coming out censoring, wanting to censor Marjorie Taylor Greene, who censored Rashida Tlaib and Ilan Omar for Jews blow up hospitals and, and shoot babies, right? No Democrats come forward. See, that's a guy and, and, and that's an angle that you're playing from a 2003, 1995 playbook, Right. And which is where they want to go back to. Yes. The Democratic Party, there's no amount of self-awareness that you can demonstrate. They don't care. They don't care. You know, there's an old saying that never attribute to malice that which can be explained by stupidity, right? Right. Okay, well, let's look at the last year. Now, I don't have the largest Twitter following in, in, in the country. By I don't even have one of the largest in our own media. But I have a large enough following. For example, a White House reporter at the Washington Post who's been a guest in my home in the past. Hit like on something because he's met my son when he was a little boy. And he hit like on something I mentioned about Noah now being a, a, almost, a, almost grown up and looking me in the eye with a deeper voice than me, Right. If I go and tweet something heinous, that same Washington Post reporter who's been a guest in my home, is he going to see it? Yeah. Are they going to write about it? Yeah. Hell yeah, they are. 
So all these times I've been pointing out all this data and facts about COVID for the last year plus, did he see all of that? Yeah. Yeah. Did they write about any of that? No. See where I'm getting at here? Of course. When you point out people's stupidity and you know, you know that they've seen it. They know that you know that they've seen it. And you know that they know that you know that they've seen it. And yet they don't acknowledge it. They just gaslight you instead. In this current era, can we still say never attribute to malice that which can be adequately explained by stupidity? Maybe the, maybe the feigned stupidity is out of malice, right? I'm certain of it. Yeah. Which brings us to Gretchen Whitmer. She has responded. Take the mask issue aside for just a second. And that is a singular issue, right? Masks aside, though, living in Michigan here in the next week or two is suddenly not going to be that much different than living in Texas. All right. Okay. She's kind of practicing an old school Democrat playbook. I've got a reelect coming up. You you see what I'm getting at here? Yeah. Yeah. Now, we have not typically seen them do this the last few years, so I'm kind of flummoxed on how to respond. Meaning that, can she just, can, can she just, you're right, you caught me, I'm sorry, I'm getting rid of that regulation, everybody sit whatever you want. Tigers back to full capacity, Michigan, Michigan State, Lions, yep. Could she, could she gaslight her way totally out of this? Absolutely. Go from arguably the worst COVID governor in the country. Remember, last year, up to 20, it was almost 20% of all American businesses were permanently lost to COVID lockdowns. That's the national average. It was 19.6 something percent, I think it was. Michigan was higher than every other state. Almost one third of Michigan businesses were lost to permanently to COVID lockdowns. And now I've seen in recent weeks, multiple candidates either officially announce they're going to challenge her in the Republican Party or be reported to be hinting at it or talking about it or looking at it. Is it possible she might just, by the time we get to 4th of July weekend, everything, even masked, everything is gone, right? When her political rear end was on the line and the CDC said shut it down in April she didn't shut it back down she's kind of practicing a playbook we haven't seen Democrats use in recent years because they've just gotten away with just um, well it's 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 Marxism or nothing she's doing good old-fashioned pandering here could it work yeah because of your rant yesterday remember plank one at the end We have a lot of Americans who just aren't interested in being Americans anymore. And what does that mean? Well, we talk about it in Fauci and Bargain. We the people. Accountability. We're the boss. I've been ranting and raving for a long time. The reason why, you're right, Steve, and that it could work is because where have we seen accountability in the last year? Genuine accountability. The example by which all else say, whoa, We've gone too far. We need to reach. It's not there. It's not existing. If the election were this fall, she would not get away with it. Doesn't mean she would lose, but she would be on the defensive. We we may just find out 
Michigan's just gone. We've, we've seen that about several other places, right? Okay. This, if the election were this November, she could not get away with it. Okay. Doesn't mean she would lose, but there would be some level of accountability she would consistently face throughout the campaign trail, everything else. Let, but with the election is not this November, right? Right. So a whole year plus, she's on all their cable news systems, uh, rehabilitating her image, throwing out the first pitch next year at Tiger Stadium. Could she just make it look like 2020? 15 those 15 months of her of her tenure just never occurred just never mention it never talk about it just it never happened the answer is us steve the answer is us here's why i bring this up beyond just my interest in my former home state and i wanted to close the loop on something we had talked about in depth recently on the program beyond that the other reason why is because we're not really talking folks about gretchen whitmer are we who are we really talking about the people. We're really talking about the people. What does it say if a state in just, what is it now? It would be six years. If a state in six years goes from voting for Donald Trump for president in 2016 to just telling Gretchen Whitmer after losing one-third of its businesses. Having arguably the most ridiculous lockdown, not called California, in the country. And those that same exact state just turns around and just says, hey, let's let bygones be bygones. We'll just... It's all good now. What is that... What's that say? This is not a state of insignificance. It's one of the most important, pivotal swing states in the union, right? Um, so what does it say about, what, what conclusions can we draw about on a civilization level about where things are at if that's the case? Death of the West. Just playing out the clock, but it's it's a route. I don't I don't know what to tell you. There's no variable there that you can just wish upon a star on. Right. There just this isn't, isn't. This isn't Reagan overcoming an 82 recession to win re-election in 84 because he inherited one. Okay. He inherited the worst recorded recession in modern American history. We had to create a statistic called the misery index. All right. To, to, to justify or quantify the combination of inflation and unemployment that was going on at the end of the Carter era. So, I mean, he inherited a wreck. He inherited a mess. All right. Whitmer is coming off of, um, I mean, pre-COVID, this was the greatest expansion of the American economy since the dot-com boom. So, so this is no baggage on her. And she imposed this on her people. She imposed these restrictions longer than most other governors did. She, she also did, had a nursing home problem in Michigan as well with the elderly. She did all of this. Their hands are on this directly. Like, we've got Colonel Mustard in the parlor with the candlestick on 4K, right? Can't be denied. But like a year from now, if she's thrown at the first pitch at Tiger Stadium, yeah, whatever, it's, it's, it's all good. It's cool. Just just let it slide. Steve, we're the, we love the movie The 300. Mm-hmm. We are now the Persians without the military might. Hmm. 
you know how that the, that movie is painted in stark we actually have like subhuman crab people it's meant to be an optic that you can't forget like mm-hmm. this is the de-evolution mm-hmm. this is that's who we are but we can't against china aaron's montage was perfect china's right they're just going to yell uh pro- pronouns at us and hurt our feelings and make us cry and go home there's also the aspect if this is not who we are on election night when that is for the gubernatorial race in Michigan, we just have to wait on the results from Detroit as well. So there's that. Well, that's a nice that's a nice thing to have in your back pocket. Allegedly. Um Is that an environment we could take advantage of, though? Meaning if that many people, let's not, if we have to, we have to. But if we don't have to, let's not crush the soul of our audience in the year of the answer is us if we don't have to, okay? That systemic level of complacency, is that something we can actually take advantage of then? Meaning that if that many people are complacent, then it really doesn't take that much of a mobilized minority to just wreak havoc around here. If that many people are just, you know, uh, living out space oddity, ground control to Major Tom. I mean, then the amount of people that are actually engaged that can really wreak havoc in the process, it doesn't really require a mass mobilization of a, of, of a, of, of, of a, of a multitude of us, just a convicted conglomerate of us well i'll paraphrase you paraphrasing somebody else it's not a matter of can we take advantage of it we must take advantage of it the outcomes are for god hmm. i'm getting emails now from my former home state saying i can you, you, the scenario you're laying out i can just see it right now i mean she's suddenly deliverer when she was the i mean she was the in prisoner She's getting credit for letting people out of the prison that she put us in. We'll come back with more in a moment. We've been warning you about home title theft for quite a while here on the show. And this is where cyber thieves remove your home's title remove your name from your home's title so that they can become the new owner. And we've been telling you to get home title lock. You never know when a data breach is going to happen that exposes your information to these thieves. Well, one of them just happened to Facebook. You know, maybe if they worked on their cybersecurity a little bit more than say censoring uh, opinions that they, they want to play oligarchy with, maybe this wouldn't have happened, but it did. 500 million accounts have had their names, address, Personal information leak, the kinds of things that you use to identify yourself online. Cyber thieves now have that information too. They use that information to log into where your home's title is kept online, claim to be you, then forge your name on a quick claim deed, claiming that you sold your home to them. So they can then liquidate all of that equity and leave you with payments, maybe even foreclosure and eviction on your hands. Don't let that happen to you. Get 30 free days of protection during this monumental breach right now to know that you and your home are covered with 30 free days of protection at HomeTitleLock.com. Use the promo code radio at HomeTitleLock.com. 
Let's get to fake news or not. And we've been each week going through a chapter in our book, Fauci and Bargain, the number one bestseller, uh, the most powerful and dangerous bureaucrat in American history. This week, we're going to take you, I think, through the most unique chapter in the book. Because there were some questions that, that, frankly, just me, on a personal level, sitting here last year watching what was going down or not going down on a given day in the Trump White House. The, uh, the, uh, the amount of, uh, they were co-opted by Anthony Fauci. And at first, willingly, I had to get some answers to some questions. But the, the kinds of answers I, we needed, I probably wasn't going to get anybody to go on the record with their name and give to us. So instead, we created, hey, you know, the Bob Woodwards of the world do this to, uh, do this to us all the time. Why can't we you know, turn about as fair play? What's good for the goose and all, right? So we created a composite character in this book named Veritas. And Veritas is a composite of conversations we had with those either in or with, with intimate knowledge of what was going on inside the Trump White House last year during the COVID crisis. To try to get to, if nothing else, I, I just needed some emotional closure. I needed to know some answers to some things. And that's what this chapter is about. It's a conversation with our composite character, Veritas. And with that, Todd, you may begin. Our very own he, she, they, right? Jane, yes. Who can... Un- Lizard which which pronoun? We don't know. We, we don't know what pronoun, what, what pronoun Veritas is. Indeed, yes. Non-binary. Steve, I've got five of them today. Fake news or not, Steve, Dr. Anthony Fauci already had an intimate working relationship with members of the Trump inner circle before COVID, which is why he was trusted and appointed leader of the Burks Redfield expert clan. I don't. I think that's fake news. I don't think that that's ever established by Veritas in the chapter, is it? It is. You are correct. It is fake news. He was largely like he was to us. Just a guy over there working in this department, been there a while, but unknown. Because we we asked that of our Veritas is um, because we were operating under that assumption, maybe, that um, New York City, him and Trump ran in the same circles. Uh, Trump was very active in Hollywood uh, uh, causes prior to getting formally involved in politics, including with the homosexual community, where Fauci is very well known and celebrated for his work on AIDS. And it just only makes sense that their paths would have crossed and he would have sort of been grandfathered in with some credibility with Trump, given they both come from New York high society, right? And and that's kind of how he was given the point person on this. What we found out, however, is even more depressing. That's actually not true. They they didn't know who the hell he was either. That he just... And so that implies at least, implies, that when they were putting together... They just said, we'll go get the guy that, you know, who's the top infectious disease expert in our government and go get that guy. There was a lot of blind faith going on. Yeah, no real vetting, no second opinion, 
And I, I don't think anybody would fault the White House for saying, let's go get our leading expert, right? I, I wouldn't, I, that, that, right? I mean, you find out you've got cancer. Wouldn't you like to get the world's best, you, sure. you know, the nation's leading oncologist if you were told you had that kind of access, that kind of pull, right? Sure. But then when they come back to you and say, you may have to like end your way of life forever, or at least for a yeah. certain period of time, they might be right, but aren't you going to be kind of inclined to think, Who's the second best oncologist we when, have? I just, you know what I'm saying. When the drain the swamp people started to whiff the swamp, they should have decided to say, "Hmm, I got questions." Yeah, I mean, and what you find out when you read this chapter is nobody over there really thought to themselves, at least not in the beginning. Nobody over there at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, including the man in the Oval Office, nobody thought to themselves, "It's isn't it just weird that." the only solutions I'm being offered to this would all be things that would absolutely destroy my reelection resume. Right. Right. I mean, the one time, the one time Trump acts, maybe, maybe the one time, frankly, in his life, if we're being brutally honest, altruistically without any ego or with not enough ego anyway, um, leading the way is the one time you're like, dude, you need to be a lot more selfish. Right. We needed those selfish, egotistical instincts in March and April of last year. You know what I'm saying? We needed we needed Donald J. Trump to get up and read headlines that said 40 million people unemployed and said, that ain't happening on my watch. We didn't get that, though. And it sounds like that when you read this chapter, it sounds like that just never happened from the very beginning. That once they were convinced it was a crisis, they just went into every bit the panic mode everybody else did. Number two, Steve, fake news or not. Fauci did indeed tell the public very early on that the flu was going to be worse than COVID, but he always told White House insiders from the beginning that COVID was in fact worse. That's fake news. Uh, within Inside the White House, he was comparing it to a flu um, or a bad flu or a pandemic-level flu. We find out from Veritas uh, early on the entire time. What what you will also find is virtually every talking point Donald Trump ever had on this virus early on was just a regurgitation of whatever Anthony Fauci said at the time. Something that comes up repeatedly in the book, the February 28th editorial that Anthony Fauci wrote for the New England Journal of Medicine. He codified into writing, and I, I, we used to call it America's most esteemed medical journal. I mean, now they write more blogs about preferred pronouns and systemic racism than medicine. So do we know what it is now other than a, a spirit of the age screed? Do we know? Right. Okay. Um, but at the time in that, in that, in that journal, Fauci compared this and it's, it's fatality ratios to that of a pandemic level flu. Fauci did that. So the, where did that talking point come from originally from the white house? Well, it originally came from none other than Anthony Fauci. I wrote this the way I did and presented it to you the way I did because there's the notion that he gets away, he should get away with the lie about masks mm -hmm. because he was doing it for the greater good. Yeah. Well, here. Yeah, he's a real Corey Ten Boom. Yeah. And here's the assumption that, yes, maybe he may have been also been lying about the flu to the public to keep things at bay, but inside he was very, very honest. Our Veritas is. Are, uh, ultimately uh, told us that 
he was like had split personality yes. disorder with them inside the room. He came back like the next 24 hours and totally changed his tune. His behavior, and would not yes. cite evidence for doing so. His behavior inside was no different than what we have seen here. It was no different. The beginning with masks, everything, the entire time. There, there, the, there, so this idea that there was some level of assuage, the public not don't have a panic, you know, and some strategy or something involved. No, it the 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 fallacies and randomness were going on inside uh, when he came to the White House without cameras, just like we see when there are cameras. Number three, fake news or not, Steve. In their relationship with Fauci, White House reporters were more interested in the early days of COVID if they could still go on the vacations they had scheduled than anything else about the deadliness of the that disease. That is absolutely true news. Yes. So what had happened is they the White House had been inundated by White House press corps people who had cruise ships and spring break plans. And is this going to prevent me? And so in the middle of this, while they're dealing with all these other very, you know, serious issues, in the middle of this, Fauci decides to address the issue of safety of still going on cruise ships, which, of course, was during the time. What was our patient zero from a COVID data standpoint? Do you guys remember what, what the name of that ship was? The Diamond Princess was the closest thing we had to a patient zero from a COVID data standpoint. That's John John Ioannidis wrote his first white paper at Stanford University about COVID fatality ratios using the data from the Diamond Princess, right? So at the time that we're in, we're supposed to be panicking over the Diamond Princess and and the, the, the way COVID spread on that ship. Yes, the reporters in the White House were still clamoring for, can, can Fauci tell me it's still okay for me to go on my spring break? While then also clamoring uh, that Trump must shut the country down or he hates old people. Yes. That's also probably Fauci threw down on the insistence that, yes, you could still have your orgies. Remember that? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That you could go on Tinder. Right? Yes. Yeah. Or Grinder. Who knows nowadays? I don't know. All right. Number four, fake news or not, Steve. Fauci was even more insistent with White House insiders that masks were useless than he was with the general public before changing his mind. Now that's true news. It wasn't, ju- and it wasn't a supply issue. It was an efficacy issue. Yeah. Inside the White House, he was telling them, why was he telling them that? Because literally every study on planet Earth since the Spanish flu 100 years ago, every study until about the end of May, 1st of June last year, when the narrative shifted, every study ever had shown masks don't work against respiratory viruses because they're airborne contagions. And he was communicating that within the White House. So later he tried to gaslight us and say the reason he said that on 60 Minutes is he was concerned we'd run out of the PPE, we'd run out of the masks. But inside the White House, he was actually making efficacy arguments that the efficacy of the masks, they don't, they don't work. All right, and lastly, Steve, and I think there's enough uh, to uh, for you to deal with and unpack to take us home. Fake news or not, fame is like a drug to Fauci and the press obliged by making COVID the Malaysian flight with its coverage. That's a direct quote from our composite Veritas character in the chapter, as I recall. Yes. I still don't believe that's the origin of this. 
I don't. I do believe, though, it clearly fed into some of this, right? You know, it's your it's your classic behind the music VH1 special from back in the day. You know, I mean, originally, you know, Guns N' Roses didn't just didn't get into this necessarily um, uh, to make sure that uh, well, that was actually Van Halen. Uh, Van Halen didn't get into this to make sure all the blue M and M's were out of the bowl backstage to satisfy David Lee Roth. They got into this because they liked chicks and music, right? Okay. But then eventually the 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 fame gets to you, and you've you've had too many you've had too many chicks, and the, the allure of that is gone. You've got more money than you know what to do with. So now the fame goes to your head, and now you are canceling concerts because they didn't take the blue M and M's out of the bowl backstage, right? So I I do think it made it worse, the level of fame and acclaim, and I think that it incentivized him to not come clean. And to continue up with the facade of duplicity longer because your ego is getting stroked while that's occurring. But I don't believe it is the origin of this. I don't. I think it made it worse. But I don't believe it's the origin of this. I believe the origin of this is the origin of this. That the origin of his duplicity is tied directly to the origin of the virus. And I have said that in numerous interviews I have done when I've been asked about this. You know, we talk about this sudden about face. What changed, right? Those on March 11th, he gave an entirely different portrait to Congress than he gave the country for the weeks leading up to this. What changed? He never cited anything, but that sent the country into a, a year plus lockdown. What information was out there? I believe that is directly tied to the origin of the. That's my theory. It's a, it's just or more hypothesis. That's why we didn't include it in the book. We wanted to make it as as airtight with data as we possibly could. But I've had several hosts ask me, well, what do you think it was? Gun to my head. If we put the Wonder Woman lasso of truth around Anthony Fauci, I think it is the uncertainty of the or the true origins of the virus. That's what I think has really led into this for the last year and a half. And thus we have now come to the halfway point of the book. If you are struggling with chronic pain, I'm not talking about the kind that comes from inflammation, but the kind that lingers, nags, stick around, sticks around like back, knee, neck, shoulder, other joints. For me, the left hip flexor, chances are the underlying cause is really inflammation. Uh, that's what causes chronic pain in many cases. And if it's not treated, it can cause permanent damage. Topical rubs and, and, and those sorts of things help alleviate temporarily symptoms, but they don't go after the inflammation that's causing your pain, which is why you want to go after it with Omega XL backed by 35 years of clinical research it attacks the inflammation that is the cause of that chronic pain stiffness achiness that you're struggling with and right now they're offering you buy one bottle and get a second one for free buy one get a second one for free right now when you visit omegaxl.com slash steve same product i use every day omegaxl.com slash steve or give them a call at 800-844-4888 just reacting to that conversation uh that just took place it for a while you can forgive the fog of war or the fog of whatever that was. I don't want to. I don't want to call it war. But then you wonder if people inside the White House, like your composites, how early it was that they kind of had their wake up moment because the bullets are flying. They've got their own jobs to do. When was it that they really understood what was truly happening around mm. them and across the country? 
that's a question that I would love to have answered by certain people inside the White House. Hmm. I'm not sure we would like the answers to those questions. Yeah. Yeah. Hour two is next. And we're back with Hour 2, live and on demand here on Blaze TV, radio, and podcast. Steve Dace here with Todd Erzin, Aaron McIntyre, all of you. Let us know what you think about what we think via the SteveDace.com inbox. You can email it, uh, Steve at SteveDace.com. That's D-E-A-C-E, or like us on uh, MeWe, Gab, Parlor, Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Look for clips of the show at Rumble.com slash Steve Dace Show as well. This portion of the show brought to you by our friends over at Freedom Project Academy. If you were forced to keep your kids home uh, this past year and learn virtually, and then you had a chance to learn for yourself uh, some of the rot gut they were being taught, and you thought, you know what, I'm not sure I want to subject them to that again. Our friends at Freedom Project Academy have the answer because they have perfected live online learning for more than a decade. They're built on Judeo-Christian values. They offer a classical curriculum. What's that mean? It means that your kids will be taught the way the generations that founded and built the country were taught. Mastery of subject matter, critical thinking, as opposed to, say, indoctrination and propaganda. Uh, and I can personally attest to this. Our son Noah uh, did Freedom Project Academy for three years. Uh, I know the people that helped to found and run the school now, so I would highly, highly recommend you just get some free information from them right now. If you're not sure if this is for you, it doesn't cost you anything. You get a free information packet. When you go to freedomforschool.com, Again, there's a reason the average high school graduate enters college reading at a seventh grade level because they like dumbing them down. Reading or freedomforschool.com again is the website. Again, that's freedomforschool.com. This is a conversation that's probably long overdue. There's been about a half dozen times in the last year plus. I've said to myself, I need to have Todd get this guy on. And then it always slips my mind. And then finally, over the weekend, I just remembered it again. And I texted you, I think it was like six in the morning or something. And I said, hey, before I forget this time again, we've got to get Andrew Bostom on the show. A researcher, epidemiologist, Brown University has done some phenomenal work over the last year. Plus, I've used a lot of his own research uh, to help me with some of mine as well. He joins us now here today on the program. And Andrew, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Long overdue, brother. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me on, Steve. We're going to dive deep into the COVID and vaccine data. But Before we do, I want to go back to, well, you first wrote this book in 2008, The Legacy of Islamic Anti-Semitism. It was republished in 2020. We obviously just went through another round of Hamas or Iran uh, versus Israel and the Iron Dome and missiles and counter-missiles and charges and counter-charges. As you watched all of this play out, and now we have, we had roving mobs of uh, Israeli uh, citizens who are uh, sympathetic with Palestinians committing acts of violence, similar to what we've seen with BLM uh, and Antifa here in our own country. As you watched this transpire over the last couple of weeks, given the amount of work and research you've done on this topic as well, just share some of your thoughts. Well, I, I mean, I just think it's it's a it's a manifestation of, of, of a phenomenon that, you know, 
coincidentally, I had referred to right before the pandemic broke as the book was about to be released. And then, of course, the publicity had to be canceled. I had referred to what was going on at the time as a pandemic of, of, of Muslim anti-Semitism. And that was based really on, on polling data throughout the world that that uh, gave an indication of, of these of these attitudes. And and the problem, Steve, and the reason I think it's 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 been so intractable um, is because it's it's coming, you know, we don't like to talk about no one likes to talk about this. I don't like to talk about it. It's it's unfortunately coming from mainstream institutional Islam. It's not it's not a marginal phenomenon, and certainly in terms of the doctrine. Uh, obviously it's up to Muslims how they'll interpret the doctrine, but the doctrine of really, you know, both Quranic uh, Jew hatred and Jew hatred from the traditions of Islam uh, is being inculcated from mainstream Islamic institutions, the most prominent ones, particularly the, the uh, Al-Azhar University. And, and so, for example, just, just recently, uh, the current grand imam of Al-Azhar University, Ahmed Al-Tayeb, um, all he could talk about was the, the horrible outbreak of Zionist terrorism as if, as if there was no context and no, no jihad which precipitated it. And this is a man who's on record uh, saying uh, in, in 2013 uh, that the, this Quranic verse, which is, I think, a central verse in terms of Quranic anti-Semitism, it, it's in the fifth surah chapter, the 82nd verse, which is kind of a psychological projection verse. It's that the Jews harbor the greatest enmity towards Islam, and therefore they have to be hated and, 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 and debased, etc. He, he cited that in a very casual interview in, 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 in 2013 as being the central tenet upon which Islam hinges its, its assessment of Jews and how, and how they've plagued Islam from the advent of Islam till now. Uh, and, you know, the fact that he could say this so matter-of-factly, there's, there's nothing wrong with it theologically in terms of Islam, but that, that there's no pushback on this, Steve. Nowhere. No <laughs> one. I mean, the one person who has ever called him out was was Geert Wilders from, from the Netherlands. But 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 no clerical figures in the United States, uh, Jewish or 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 or, or Christian uh, or Muslim, uh, no political figures. And it just and, and he's made repeated statements along these lines. And his predecessor was even worse. His predecessor, who died in 2010, the former grand grand imam of Al-Azhar University, uh, Muhammad Sayyid Tantawi, he he wrote a tract uh, called The Jews and the Quran and the Traditions, which is a 700-page uh, horrific uh, treatise just glorifying the most vehement anti-Semitism in both the Quran and the Traditions, as also defining the permanent relationship between uh, Muslims and Jews. And, and when this, and, and you can find Shiite institutions, mainstream institutions in Iran, not, not the Khomeiniists, not the Khamenists, um, that, uh, that, that teach exactly the same theology. And I, I just don't hear anyone calling this out. And in, and in fact, what Islam really needs uh, is, is something akin to the, to the uh, Nostra Tate Vatican II process, which was a mea culpa-based uh, process to, to, dis, to discuss and, 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 and truly reform um, some of the theology in, in, in from Christianity that was that was that was anti-Semitic that that the that the at least the the, the Vatican acknowledged was, um, and I, I just don't see. I think we're light years away from that. Uh, it, it, uh, you know, coming from Islam, and it, it's got to come from outside Islam. It's got to come from non-Muslims, and and I don't hear non-Muslims talking about it. Folks, if you want to see with your own eyes and hear with your own ears. 
uh, do your own some of your own research, uh, like Andrew does as a professional researcher. But if you want to, you want to itemize with your own eyes and ears what the phenomenon he just talked about. If you have a Twitter account, you need to follow an account called Memory, M E M R I. It's how it's spelled, M E M M is in Mary E M R I. And all Memory does is just post clips unedited of what is said over the airwaves and in, in, in the Islamic world. And if you just see this like casual conversation, like their versions of cable news shows, talk shows, debates, um, their version of, of afternoon, you know, let's bring on the local celebrity, discuss, you know, what's going on in their careers and their lives, their versions of these shows. Go watch these clips for yourself and just see how casual the references that Andrew is is citing for you just comes across in their everyday vernacular. Memory is the account, M-E-M-R-I. And you'll see what he's talking about for yourself. So Andrew, let's transition next to the, uh, I, I want to, I mean, you've done outstanding work over this last year. Help me, following your has helped me understand some of the my own research that I was doing and what some of these things did and did not mean. So um, I'm overdue in thanking you personally for that. I want to get our audience up to date. I mean, you had to create, like you had to mine your own data on universities and COVID hospitalizations last year. You essentially had to do that yourself. You had to go look for that in real time. There were no studies or reports. You had to go mine that data yourself to put that together for people like us, right? So let's start with the vaccines. Okay. Okay. There's a notion out there. What I find funny about the vaccine efficacy debate is when when people like us pointed out, despite the splashy headlines, when you look at the IFR for COVID by about this time last year and onward, it really doesn't justify this level of government government tyranny. But we were told that we that we were we were uh, terribly insensitive to look at it holistically like that. That we had to just go with you don't care that there's two hundred thousand dead people, three hundred thousand dead people, which is a massive number. But in a nation of three hundred and forty million people, is frankly not statistically relevant when we're talking about all the other socioeconomic damage being done here, right? It's funny. They want to do this now. They want to flip the script on us when it comes to the vaccine efficacy, right? So we're supposed to ignore the mounting incident reports at the VAERS website and instead look at the fact that, what is it, 0.0017 or something is the percent of people vaccinated who will die or suffer a serious incident. We're supposed to ignore that. And now we now they do want us to look at the holistic picture. So what is it? Andrew, what's, what, given the risk assessment of COVID compared to the risk assessment of the vaccines, what's your latest research show? Well, in, 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 using, in using the VAERS data, and it's very limited data, but, but um, so, um, for example, uh, you, can, you can be a parent of, of someone that you feel has had uh, a, an adverse event secondary to vaccination and, and basically write in a, a report and there is a certain screening process, I believe, but it could be accepted. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, I've, I, many of the reports that I read are very detailed um, sort of clinical descriptions with laboratory data, et cetera. Um, and uh, again, Steve, it's always an association. Um, so, so you don't know causality, really. 
I mean, sometimes with anaphylaxis, it's pretty darn clear. I mean, if it's happening within hours to 24 hours of, of a vaccination and it's a full-blown anaphylactic, you know, allergic reaction, that's pretty clear-cut. That's well-established. Um, and, and there are a lot of those. Um, but but I, I, guess, I guess one of the things that I've done to try and sort this, self, sort this out for myself is I've been comparing um, the COVID vaccine experience over the last four or five months to four years worth of flu vaccine experience from 2016 through 2019. And here, and I don't want to alarm people because we are dealing, Steve, with, with large denominators and we're talking about event rates per million or, or, or percent of event rates per million. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to alarm people in that sense. But just for just just to sort of deal with this criticism that, oh, well, you know, well, I don't know what it is, a whole bunch of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. minions are just dumping stuff into the system. I, I, I don't think that's true. And, and, and by the way, why wouldn't they have been doing that for the flu vaccine? Exactly. Yeah. Um, but but I, I just I just finished looking at something where um, uh, it, in terms of 18 to 49 year olds, I guess I guess. So, so my feeling overall, Steve, has always been that and, and maybe I'm I am naive. I, I was very shocked that this all of a sudden uh, with the with the with the covid uh, experimental use authorization only or emergency use authorization only. I'm sorry, but 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 they really are experimental vaccines. Uh, so my conflation of experimental and, and emergency is is maybe appropriate. Um, I, I really thought they were going to be targeted. I thought they were going to be something akin to to pneumovax, which is for a, a very significant community acquired pneumonia, pneumococcal pneumonia, which can also cause cause meningitis. In that they would be targeted towards the high risk populations, particularly those above 65. Uh, but also there are higher risk populations for for pneumococcal pneumonia in the 18 to 64 age bracket and call it a day. And, and I thought it was going to be even more so for this disease because the overwhelming serious morbidity and, and tragic mortality from this disease is coming from those 70 plus overwhelmingly. Um, and, and I was just shocked that this quickly morphed into a mass vaccination program. And there's the rub. Because when you start to look at very low risk populations for COVID, as, as, as you've alluded to, it does become touchy as to as to how the, 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 the benefits outweigh the risks. And so um, I've been looking at this uh, in, in not only the 18 to 49 year olds, but I've started to look at below 18. And I'm very concerned now that um, particularly, again, when you when you use a comparison like like flu vaccines, that we're not dealing with the flu vaccine in terms of serious uh, adverse events, whether it's death, hospitalization um, or, or myocarditis, which has recently popped up with the mRNA vaccines. Um, and when you when 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 the, the risk of covid becomes increasingly low, below 18, 18 to 29, um, even up to 49, it, it becomes a dubious proposition to mass vaccinate otherwise healthy people. And um, I, I, I think um, that strategy, I mean, it, you know, the, it, the horse is out of the barn, but that strategy certainly as, as uh, aggressive attempts to, the, I guess the one vaccine naive population is I get less than 16 now, although increasingly they're starting to be vaccinated. I think we really have to hold the line there because uh, I'm seeing signals. It's not just myocarditis. It's some of these events where there's clotting and 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 um, and low platelets, and then just unexplained, you know, sudden deaths. Um, again, I, I don't want to alarm people. These are these are the rates are low, but but the rate of serious morbidity 
and mortality from COVID in these low risk populations is also exceedingly low. And I think I think we've crossed that threshold of the risk of the vaccines outweighing the benefit. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's the spike protein. I, I, I really I really don't know why. But I think we've already crossed that threshold. And, and I, I would like to see uh, a lot more investigation of, of these adverse events in these in these low risk, uh, low risk populations. And I'd also see a lot more honesty about how mercifully benign this disease has turned out to be in, in young people. You know, <laughs> CDC had to throw out. They, they didn't do it. They left the count in. But they published a paper in, in a report in MMWR, Morbidity Mortality Weekly Reports, which basically said that 35 percent of the 2020 pediatric deaths attributed to COVID, um, they couldn't find a causal chain. Well, I've done death certificate adjudication. That means you throw it out. <laughs> There's no causal chain. Mm-hmm. It's not, it, you, you, you can't certify it as, as, as the cause of death. There are two recent reports uh, from large hospital systems, I believe in, in California and New York, which showed, and they were published reports, they were published in, in something called hospital pediatrics, that 40 to 45 percent of, of pediatric COVID hospitalizations are not really from COVID. In other words, they, 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 are, not, they are not the major reason for, for admission. They're, they're basically incidental findings, test positivity, that sort of thing. And uh, the other piece of evidence that I think is very important for people to just sort of get their heads around and get some perspective is that um, using CDC's own data and even accepting the inflated death count without correcting that 35%, um, you can look in the in the last 10, 12 years and see d- flu deaths in, in and, and not just pandemic flu, like like the like uh, 2010, 29 to 2010, where it, the rate was about at least four or five fold the number of COVID deaths we've experienced so far. Um, but you can see multiple years of seasonal flu where the rate where the death rate is is two or two to three times uh, what, what we're seeing uh, for, for, for COVID. So. I, I'm just very, very concerned um, about what what rapidly morphed into a mass vaccination s- strategy um, without without adequate follow up. And and one, one last thing, Steve, is that um, I looked at the uh, Martin Koldorf, who's a wonderful epidemiologist mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. from Harvard, from, uh, yeah, from Harvard, and and you know he, he he and you and I would probably not agree on anything politically. He's basically a socialist, mm-hmm. but he's been mm-hmm. very good. He's been very good on these issues, and he's actually a specialist in the epidemiology of vaccines. And he was a co-author on a paper that that uh, came out the end of last year, the very beginning of this year, which basically looked at the time to formal licensure of of, vac- of new new vaccines, uh, new disease, uh, new vac- vaccines for new diseases, new vaccines, and it's about almost two years. And so if if if, if the, the the murmuring that I'm hearing now that, you know, we you could have forget about the EUAs, there could be formal approval of one or two of, of, of these vaccines before the end of the summer. Uh, that would be an extraordinarily uh, rapid uh, turnaround and, and, and granting a formal licensure with nowhere near adequate follow up, particularly if you're going to start vaccinating young people, young, healthy people. Two things I want you to quantify for us in what you just said to kind of bring this home. Sure. Um, you pointed out on your Twitter feed this morning, 412 colleges now are going to require vaccinations for students for admission in the fall. Teacher unions are already making it. All the students, we're not coming back. They're trying to put down the marker until the students are vaccinated, right? Last year, we almost did not have a college football season. Because two of the major five conferences in college football 
had their epidemiologist express concern about myocarditis, which is, you know, a heart inflammation. They expressed concerns with myocarditis associated with COVID-19. One of the other major uh, conferences went and got the leading expert on it at Mayo Clinic who uh, testified to all of their university presidents that he didn't see any data that this was any different of a risk than any other viral outbreak that myocarditis could be a secondary affliction from. Okay. When I hear you saying though, is we're seeing myocarditis amongst youngsters who are vaccinated. So let's do the math. Let's put, connect some dots here. Andrew, it's quite likely they're going to make every college football player take a vaccine to play in the fall. Right. Okay. Um, there, how many could every high school football player at every public school in, in certain states be told they have to get vaccinated to play right along these kinds of lines. Do you see where I'm going here? Yes. yes. With what we're, yes. with what you're talking about, with what we're seeing already at the nascent stages of youth vaccination with, with myocarditis, when they start holding the gun to the parents' heads that you can't play college football or high school football this fall or any other sport for that matter, but those are the biggies, obviously without getting the jab, would you be concerned then as a as an epidemiological researcher based on the trend lines you're currently seeing if we did a mass vaccination of every high school and and college athlete in the fall what is the current nascent trend line of myocarditis tell you could be we, we could see with that i i hate to i hate to head steve really but 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 um the only thing i can tell you right now is that the signal is way louder because you know other vaccines have been associated rarely with myocarditis and the big comparison I've been working with is flu. And, and given you know, very low overall event rates, again, again, um, what we're seeing with COVID, which I find unacceptable, particularly if you have a basis for comparison, um, it can't all be overreporting, is, is 85 times the risk of what we see typically with flu vaccines. And, and, and again, I, I, you know, so the, the, ab, the, the relative risk is large. The absolute risk is, is, is still down. I think it was something like one 0.7 per, per million, I just calculated. But there's a backlog, uh, th- th- there's a delay, I, I would say, in terms of getting information into the VAR system. And then, if, and then of course, you know, there's always the, oh, well, it's just an association, it's not co- right. cause. Yeah. But all I can tell you is, 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 is just looking at the raw data, there's something wrong. <laughs> I, 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 I don't like it. And, and, and also it begs the question, you know, there's a long association between flu infection, not not flu vaccine, but flu infection uh, and myocarditis, a, a very well established one. And it would pop up tragically, you know, occasionally in, in athletes or in young people. Um, and it, it didn't cause us to shut things down and to discriminate against people and force them to get flu vaccines or whatever. I, I mean, we just dealt with it like mature, rational people, understanding that these are rare events, but they're tragic, rare events that do occur. Um, and, and, and so the whole the whole milieu is just is just so disturbing to me. So let, let, let's have a broader conversation about risk assessment. Clearly, the country has hit some form of herd immunity threshold. Right. Marty McCarry at Johns Hopkins has been writing about this in The Wall Street Journal for months. And now you look at the trend lines in the last few weeks. Our hospitalizations collectively, I believe, are now at the lowest level 
in the history of the pandemic. Uh, we've seen a, a massive, uh, our, our excess mortality in the country has returned to pre-pandemic levels. And, and now you're looking at uh, the daily cases have dropped anywhere from 75 to 85 percent, depending on you know who catalogs it and how you want to do the math. All right, that, and, and mortality, Steve. I mean, I mean right. that, that's in other words, the, the real the real measures. I, I I also one of my pet peeves when I went back and read the the original descriptions of herd immunity. Remember, it they were it, this was described in the 1920s before there were uh, these sort of modern mass vaccination campaigns. And the criterion was that you break the back of the epidemic. Mm -hmm. In other words, and, and you stop mass death and mass serious morbidity. And, 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 then you, and then you pat yourself on the back because that's really what, what, you know, what, what the goal should always have been. You know, particularly with COVID, when we saw what it was, primarily a, di a disease of a targeted population, particularly the elderly, this was not smallpox. You didn't need a right. disease eradication. This isn't, or, or this isn't polio where your 11-year-old son exactly. is playing in the fields yesterday and tomorrow he's paralyzed or Spanish flu where your 25-year-old husband is working the fields and then the next day he's bedridden and never wakes up, right? Okay. Exactly. So exactly. what percentage that. of this herd immunity threshold would you estimate? our mass vaccination program is responsible for? Because, see, I think that gets That's into the risk question. assessment as well. That's a great question, Steve, because I, I can't tell you, because I think, I think there was a tremendous amount of naturally acquired convalescent immunity before the vaccine ca uh, campaign began. Uh, and, and you can look at, you know, for example, Israel and its neighbors, where Israel you know, basically became vaccine central. Um, but a, a lot of its neighbors, you know, pretty much showed a very comparable curve without having the advantage of, of mass uh, vaccination. I think mass vaccination has helped where there are pockets of susceptible people who, who never, who never uh, you know, got, got naturally infected. It's, it's absolutely helped. So cardiologists, cardiologists, I don't mean to interrupt you, Andrew. We're just running short on time. And there's a couple of things I want to make sure our audience hears from you. Cardiologist Peter McCullough at Baylor. I mean, he's been in the a media. Colleague, colleague, colleague of yours. Yes. I, I saw him the other day. He estimated it was 1% that va the vaccines had, had helped us. 1% was, was his estimate of the vaccine efforts contribution to reaching the herd immunity threshold. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't know where he got that number, but, but I'll tell you what, I'll tell you something just in support of him. If, 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 even, if even just that 1% was amongst the frailest and most susceptible, mm -hmm. uh, that, that, that would be worthwhile. But, but it, but, and I don't really know how to quantify it, but, but I am- No, I, am I don't think anybody wants to debate Unless they are just ideologically anti-vax, and frankly, right. we're giving those people a lot of ammunition with the way we're treating we this this effort at the, as we speak. But unless you ide ideologically came into the argument with that, I don't think anybody else besides that is arguing like the DeSantis approach. Eighty-three percent of seniors in a senior-dominated demographic, right? They're the most susceptible. A targeted vaccination effort with a pandemic that's evolving in real time that we still don't know the origins. I don't think anybody's really debating that. Now they don't want to make this argument about getting it out into the general population, as you said. And I think so that is now where we need to do holistic risk assessments. What Absolutely. is that? If, if, so let's, let's say that Peter McCullough, who's pretty smart, is off 10 times and it's 10%. Right. Okay. Right. Right. Is, is in your view, based on what you know in the research you've done, I'm 47 years old. All right. I'm a little heavy, but I work out regularly. My health screening is pretty, pretty, is, is probably of a guy 40 pounds smaller than I actually am. All right. 
I had asthma as a kid. That's about it. I don't take any prescription drugs at all other than, and I take vitamin C and D supplements every day. Given that, should I be running out, me personally, if I asked you, is the herd immunity, is is the likelihood people, members of my family had it, so I was exposed to it as well, okay? Should I risk running out and getting the jab based on the research that you have done? Should I done, should I do that? It, it, it doesn't sound like you're in any of the high risk categories that would merit vaccination. If you wanted to reassure yourself, mm-hmm. uh, Steve, for example, um, if you, you could you could certainly get, uh, you know, antibody testing because you might have had mm-hmm. a subclinical infection from from family members uh, that where most of the transmission takes place. And even more sensitively and, and maybe more importantly, is there is <laughs> speaking of all these EUAs, there's now an EUA approved um, T cell immunity test called T detect which I've, I've read some of the papers before they got the EUA. It sounds like a, like a very reasonable, serious you know, group of people that put together the assay. Um, I, I think those are the sorts of things. For those that don't I, know, I, what I, he's I, talking I, about with T-cells is long-term, long-form it, immunity. It is, yeah, It is long-term immunity. For example, when, 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 when the pandemic broke, uh, there were a lot of interesting studies done on SARS-CoV-1 uh, patients. So people who had experienced, who had, who had, who had convalesced and, and, uh, and could donate plasma uh, after being infected 2003, they still had active T cell immunity, uh, and 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 so you know it, it's it's I, I, for someone like yourself who's and you don't have a high risk exposure, Steve. It's not like you're working in a nursing mm-hmm. home. It's not like you're working in, in a healthcare setting because that could change the equation too. Sure. Um, I, I I don't I don't see anything from what you've described that would that would make make your vaccination an, an urgent thing, and certainly you know, a watch and wait attitude would fit someone of your health profile, given given what we don't know about these vaccines. I think it's a perfectly reasonable decision. The other thing, if if, if you were concerned and, and you know someone like a Peter McCullough, I, I would be well attuned to um, uh, to what is available for early treatment, uh, whether it's monoclonal antibody right. cocktails or, or he says that that's, are- by the way, he says that's been the biggest key is doctors actually started doing early treatment and that has helped with this. I'm out of time, Andrew. We could do this like for another half an hour. We got to have you back again soon to do that other half hour. Thank you, man. You're doing great work. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Steve. Great, great to be with you. You bet. Bye-bye. God bless you. We'll come back. Liz Wheeler was the breakout star at One American News Network. She's now debuting her own podcast and she will join us next. She was the breakout star at One America News Network, and she has now broken out on her own. In fact, her new podcast debuts today. Liz Wheeler is here with us on Blaze TV. Liz, it's good to have you with us. Welcome to the program. How are you? Hi, Steve. Thanks so much for having me. I'm great. This is the first time you've been with us. I've seen a lot of your work in the past. Just kind of give our audience a little um, Liz Wheeler. Uh, Who are you? you What are you into? Where'd you come from? Likes, dislikes, et cetera. Okay, so my full my full biography, basically, my full biography. So I hosted a top rated cable news show on One America News uh, for the last five years until last fall. And then I left that network because uh, well, I'm really proud of what I did there. I had the time of my life building that show, but I knew it was time for bigger and better things. 
And I had been in, I'd been working on this new show. This new show has been in the works for over a year um, because it's slightly different than anything else that's out there. The Liz Wheeler show, we're going to play offense. Some, some would say for the first time, right? We're going to play offense instead of doing what conservatives tend to do, which is playing defense. You know, the name conservative sort of insinuates that we are trying to conserve something. So we, we stand our guard around the things that are important to us, but we don't necessarily go out and challenge liberals ideologically when they try to take over our institutions, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's the public school system that we surrendered uh, starting way back in the 1960s, whether it's marriage, whether it's the family, whether it's different aspects of our government, these things are part of the Democrats' long game, which if we had been strategic as conservatives, we would have seen coming and we could have prevented by playing offense, right? So what we're going to do on my show now is we are going to play offense. We're going to identify these threats to our culture, and we're going to make a difference. We're going to stop Democrats from doing what they're doing, and we are going to restore and reclaim the institutions that have made uh, the United States great. For example, today on today's episode, we talk about Dr. Fauci and how, while at the NIH, he actually funded, he gave a grant to Dr. Peter Daszak, who subcontracted to China's Dr. Xi, who in her lab in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, conducted these dangerous gain-of-function experiments that could have led to COVID-19. COVID-19 could have been a lab leak. We talk about this in the episode today, and we talk about not just exposing this, but what people can do to stop their tax money from funding things like this, right? So we're hoping that my show is different, that we're able to inspire people to get involved and feel like they're making a difference, not just once every four years when you cast your ballot for the president, but every day all year long. So, I mean, that's that is a, that's music to my ears, what you just said. I mean, that, that's a siren song for me because my, one of my great frustrations is we, we've kind of had this model where we get entertained with our alt favorite alternative media figures in between elections. And then during the election, we just go and wrote, vote Republican and then just assume these guys and gals are just handling everything for us and we go back to our lives. And then we are shocked to see that Either nothing's changed or it just continues to get worse and worse. And our theme for our audience this year was the answer is us, that we need to get more directly involved. We we got to be more aggressive and less less passive in the passive aggressive complex. And, and I, I get it. We're all busy. Right. And they're always on the other side going to be more convicted. We have more kids than them. We have more businesses than them. We have more churches than them. We have other things in our lives we esteem higher than politics. And when this is essentially the way you work out your own salvation in fear and trembling on the left, there's going to be a commitment level issue there where they're always going to have a certain level of obsessiveness more than we do. But I, I bet that we are in a season right now that we got to emulate a little of that obsessiveness. Because the one thing I think that we saw this last year, Liz, with COVID, is that COVID showed, is, to me, COVID is a harvest. The amount of Americans that were willing to be, that had been indoctrinated to the point that they were willing to bow the knee and just close up their churches, close up their businesses, and, and, and month after month, week after week, have no second opinion, no data, and just dutifully go along with it or just put on a mask, put on two, put on three, and it doesn't matter that they just don't work. I think that we've, we are learning here that um, we just can't get by on the whole silent majority playbook from the 80s and 90s any longer. Right. I, I agree with you. I'm not even sure I fully agree with the idea of a silent majority, because if we are the majority and we are silent, then shame on us. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. We should be we should be speaking out. What I'm what I'm hoping that we are is maybe a bare minority and that we bring other people 
into onto our side and then inspire them to get involved. Because the thing is, Steve, I think a lot of times conservatives try to fight these fights in the political arena, right? We see politicians introducing legislation that we don't like or enacting mandates that we think are unconstitutional, and we fight it at that level. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. But it is true. The old adage, politics are downstream of culture, and conservatives have been unwilling to really fight for the culture for decades now. I mean, you can't you can't see WAP reigning supreme at the top of the music charts and realize and think that conservatives haven't lost the culture wars. Mm-hmm. I mean, we obviously have. And it, it, to our credit, it's because we're comfortable saying, OK, we don't want to be part of that pop culture. We don't want to be part of that degradation. We're going to just step aside here and sort of create our own, our alternative over here. And that's fine. Maybe that's what I would do for my family, too, if the only alternative was to be part of this terrible uh, cultural degradation that we see. But by doing that, we've acquiesced all of pop culture. We've acquiesced everything. We've acquiesced public opinion. We've acquiesced how people think about these different institutions, whether it is traditional marriage, whether it is the family being the best anti-poverty program ever in the history of the world, whether it is our music and our movies and our books and the way we relate to each other and our school systems from kindergarten all the way through, you know, university education, we have maybe created an alternative, but at the cost of pop culture and our culture in general. And if politics are downstream of culture, then we have to fight for that culture. We can't let the left have it, or we shouldn't be surprised when they win in politics too. Amen. Um, I'm looking at the piece you wrote uh, for our buddy Josh Hammer over at Newsweek today. And I I love the premise of this. And and, and looking through it, I, I hear a similar theme I've articulated to our audience in recent years, which is other than gun rights, You cannot really find a singular issue where we have successfully moved the country to the right of where it was 20 to 30 years ago on that topic. And now, of course, with the NRA and disarray within fighting and everything else, who knows if we're going to even hold the ground on hold hold our ground on the Second Amendment now, given all the ground we've gained on there since the Brady Bill uh, in the mid 90s. And I hear a similar themology from you when you say, "Hey, if we're going to win the culture, we have to first first or win the culture war. We have to first admit we're we're losing it here." Tell us more about yeah. that. Yeah. And I think there's one other area that conservatives have been really effective because I don't mean to be pessimistic here. I don't mean to finger point and blame it at conservatives either. What I mean is we just need a moment of accountability. We need to be a little clear eyed for a moment about our own failures and what we need to do to move forward. And I think the area that we have done really well is public opinion on abortion, right? If you look at what people think of abortion, starting from the moment of conception all the way through birth, Over 80% of people in our country, whether you're pro-life or identify as pro-choice, whether you're Republican or or conservative, Democrat or liberal, 80% of people think third trimester abortion should be illegal. And 60% of Americans think second trimester abortion should be illegal. So we actually have been very successful as a conservative movement, not only changing public opinion on pro-life issues, but also enacting legislation on the state level. And I wanna give kudos to the conservative movement for this, but this is the kind of single-minded focus that we need to give to other cultural issues, where we're not willing to, to cede even a single inch on these issues, where we say, listen, we know what is right, we know what is moral, versus we know what is wrong and we know what is immoral, and we're not willing to compromise at all when it comes to morality and basic human rights. That's really, a template for how conservatives should be fighting for all of our cultural institutions. And when we don't, when we come instead 
to the bargaining table saying, let's find a compromise for the sake of compromise because there's some sort of vague virtue in compromise itself, which by the way, I don't believe there is. But if we come to the table with that, then what ends up being on the chopping block are these very rights that we hold dear. And you can't compromise with that because you can't come back from it. What has been, where does the tendency come from for us to find our own, well, you know what, let's go find our conservative, pansexual, vegan, lizard person and make them the keynote at CPAC this year so that everybody will know we don't hate vegan, uh, you know, pansexual lizard people, right? I'm, where, where has this, because this has existed, I think I'm at least a little older than you, uh, this tendency to try to just slap an R on, on whatever, as you put it, cultural degradation the left comes up with has existed my entire career and it has mystified me, this impulse. Where do you think this stems from? Because I, I really think doing what people like you want to do and what, uh, to a degree, what I've been talking about we have to fight this in our own ranks, this notion that we need to yeah. come up with an R or a conservative mascot version of whatever bearded lady act uh, the uh, the pagans over there on the left come up with next. Well, I think it's, it's a mistake that uh, nobody in sports would make, right? And that's playing by the rules of the other side. Why does the other side get to set the rules, right? Why would we play into their identity politics? Why would we play into their cultural Marxism? We ha- that, that's the thing about conservatives. We're generally nice people, right? So we want to listen to other, listen to the opposite side, and we want to say, okay, let's talk about this. Let's, let's see if we can be tolerant of your views. And that's fine if you want to act that way out of kindness as an individual. But when you're fighting this fight for the soul of our country, you can't just accept the premise just because someone else presents it as the premise. You can't just accept a binary option because someone else pretends it's a binary option. No, you have to say, wait a second, we're not going to play your identity politics because what you're doing is identity politics. And there are not very many conservatives, Steve, who actually will stop in the middle of an argument and detail or articulate what the other side is doing rhetorically, what strategies they're using. It's something that I try to do often when I'm in one of these arguments and someone says, well, Republicans are X, Y, and Z. And I say, well, wait a second. So what you're doing right now is you're using an ad hominem to try to delegitimize (laughs) uh, a particular policy decision because you don't want to argue the facts on the policy. So let's erase that. We're not going to have that argument. And we're going to go back to the facts of the policy and have that discussion. And so really what conservatives need to do is identify Are we trying to play by the rules of the left? And if so, why did they get to set the rules? And should we be playing by their rules versus saying, okay, these are the rules that we want to play by and we're not going to compromise on that. Very, very well said. Liz, how can people find your new show? Oh, definitely. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. You can go to iTunes. You can go to Spotify. If you want to watch the video form, you can go to YouTube or Rumble. Please, please subscribe to the show. Download it. Give us a five-star rating. Write us a review. As you know, Steve, that's the way to climb up the iTunes chart so that more people uh, discover your show. And you can go to LizWheelerShow.com for all the information. Liz, good luck to you. Was very impressed with what I saw of your work over at uh, One American News. And uh, thanks for being on our show. And we wish you well with the new endeavor. Thanks so much, Steve. All right, take care. Uh, she's a she's a powerhouse. There's there is a serious intellect there. All right, so you guys have had to sit here quietly for like almost an hour. So we just had a ton going on today. So I wanted to make sure we had some time here at the end. For, uh, for your guys' commentary. Thoughts on what we've discussed today? Because it's been quite a bit. Well, she understands what I've been saying all along. Please, America, do not return to normal because normal sucked. That's basically what she said. We, our normal uh, that we got drunk on got at this point. We have got 
to do better as we the people. We have a duty as citizens. The Americans, uh, you have to decide, do you want to be American or not? And we need to be clear about what that fight looks like. And in terms of the first half hour, I, the so-called anti-vaxxer on the show, or even blown away by the conversation you and Andrew had at the end about the so-called 1% herd immunity figure. Even I am shocked by that. Wow. I, I was shocked when I heard Peter McCullough say that with my own ears. And um, I, I think, how do I put this? So this morning, the White House said, that we hit 50% vaccinations. All right, I saw that. They forecasted that they're going to hit their 70% mark by the 4th of July. That was 50% adult vaccinations, yes. right? Was it not? Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. If they do that, and we see another wave of this in the fall, they are not going to be able to make the case that those of us with, quote, vaccine, I'm absolutely vaccine hesitant. Why? Because I'm data resilient. That's why. I've not seen any data that shows I need to get this given the yeah. risk involved. And, and I, I, you know, I put my, my data accumulation abilities up against the vast majority of people. There's people better at it than me. That's why we had Andrew Boston on the show, right? That's why I'm asking him questions. Mm -hmm. I'm checking my own work, but if, and when there is another surge of the seasonal surge of this late fall, early winter next year or later this year, they're not going to be able to blame the vaccine hesitant with those vaccination numbers. They're going to have to come up with some other answers. Because one of the other points that McCullough made in that same discussion I heard where he said that is he pointed out that this is the first time in human history that we have done a mass vaccination for an outbreak that is still surging, meaning that it hadn't kind of settled its, its epidemiological curve and not been settled over years. But we're doing this to coincide studying the virus's epidemiological curve at the same time. No one is being vaccinated with the actual version of COVID going around because it's variated or mutated several times. These vaccinations were done with the original COVID, uh, COVID virus that we had. So everybody now that's getting it now has some form of a variant. We don't know what the what will happen if you in, inject a spiked protein into somebody that's already has a natural immunity. We don't know what will happen with with the way these mutations may now mutate in response to such an early surge. That he he's the one raising these points, and so that certainly got my attention in that conversation. You bet. Yeah, well, and that vaccine hesitancy, by the way, you actually described almost all anti-vaxxers pre-COVID. That's what they actually are, and these are people. Who do their? We can argue ultimately with what their interpretation of the data is, but these are uh, these are smart people who do their research as well, and they've just got a lot of questions, just like you do now. What do you think, Aaron? Yeah, going back to specifically what you just brought up about not having that talking point, saying that fifty percent now and then 70 percent by the fall being vaccinated by the fourth. It, by the fourth, I'm sorry, by yeah. the fourth in our. In our country, you know, they can always go back and retcon that because the playbook that's been run out over the past year, and they run this on virtually every issue of iconoclasm or every issue that really gets to the heart, cuts to the quick of spreading progressivism and really just attaining power in the United States is what I've talked about ad nauseum over the last year. At least it seemed like ad nauseum at some points. The unfalsifiability fallacy where you assert something that cannot be possibly verified, but you get to assert it because the experts say so. Cases go up, you weren't masking hard enough. Cases go down, it's because you were masking. You cannot assert those things. The same thing can be said right now about the vaccine effort. 
the the cases are going down. It's because of the vaccines. Cases go back up. Well, oh wait, we said the vaccines are already. So if we get caught with our knickers down, well, uh, we never actually we met fifty fifty percent of people vaccinated, seventy percent by the fourth uh, from a certain point of view. That's the same playbook run over and over and over again. And fundamentally, ultimately, it goes back to we, the people. The answer is always us. How many times are we going to get fooled and flummoxed by this again, corporately as, as a people? That's That remains to be seen. It always comes back to government by the consent of the governed. What yep. do you consent to? John 317. This is Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network.